Um, this is Dr. Sadaf Ashraf. I'm a postdoc within the University of Aberdeen working on arthritis and pain research. Dr. Gail Morrow at the University of Aberdeen and Oxford in the field of hemostasis. Dr. Clara Barker, a material scientist at Oxford University. Dr. Anjali Shah, I'm co-chair of the UK Research Staff Association and an epidemiologist based at the University of Oxford. And you are listening to a national postdoc conference special on the Academy's Developing Practice podcast. So Sadaf, Gail, Clara and Anjali, my guest co-host Michael Robinson and I are really pleased to be speaking to you today for this National Postdoc Conference special. We're delighted to talk to you about the new realities researchers face, a key theme of the National Postdoc Conference hosted by the University of Liverpool, which is taking place in September 2021. But before we get started, it would be great if you could tell us a little bit about your background and how you've arrived at the position you're in today. So Clara, if we start with you. Yeah, so uh, hi everyone, I'm Dr. Clara Barker, I'm a material scientist at the University of Oxford. I run the Centre for Applied Superconductivity. I'm also the chair of the LGBT plus advisory group to Oxford University, Dean of Equality and Diversity at Lineker College, and I'm on various E&D panels such as the Royal Society. Uh, so yeah, many, 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 many roles, I think. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. And Sadaf, how about yourself? Um, so I'm slightly junior to Clara there. Um, so I did my undergraduate um, from King's College and did my master's there. And then I went on to do my PhD from the University of Nottingham and I did a few postdocs before moving to University of Aberdeen and I came here in 2018. And um, like Clara, um, since I've been here, I've sort of got myself involved in various committees um, on top of doing my own research. Um, I've got involved in teaching and being part of, you know, various committees that we have in the university, such as the IDEAL, um, which is about inclus inclusivity, diversity and equality for all, as well as um, being part of the race equality charter within the university. So yeah, like Clara, I've got many roles on top of um, being a postdoc. Wonderful, thank you, that's great. Anjali, how about yourself? Hello, I'm Anjali Shah. Uh, I'm an epidemiologist and a research manager at the University of Oxford. I, my research at the moment is studying fractures and how to reduce second fractures happening. Uh, I, like the others, have a number of different hats. I've sat on a lot, a lot of university committees. Um, I am currently the chair of the UK Research Staff Association. And through that, I sit on the national concordat, the research and development concordat strategy group. Um, I have had a varied career. Uh, I started out at London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine doing my PhD in childhood leukemia trends. Um, and then I've done a short, I spent a long time studying cancer survival, um, but the money dried up in my area uh, from when I moved to Oxford working at the Child Cancer Research Group. So I worked for a short time in maternal health. Now, for the last six years, I've worked in the orthopaedic department here. Also, I have just finished a three year part time role as a researcher developer. So I have supported researchers across Oxford as well as nationally uh, through my chairing role um, and 
have been involved with a lot of the funders, UKRI, Royal Society, Welcome, with their initiatives for improving research culture. And Gail, yourself. Thank you. Um, so I would say I'm probably a lot more junior than everyone else. Um, so I finished my PhD in 2018 at the University of Aberdeen. And I then went to um, the University of Oxford, did a postdoc there for two years. And then last year, I just came back to Aberdeen. Um, so the lab I worked in in Oxford, it's a collaboration um, with the, the lab in Aberdeen. So it's worked out um, very well for me to go between the two, the two institutes. So um, at the moment, I'm still mainly focusing on my own research, but starting to expand my responsibilities, you know, looking for um, summer students and just got accepted for a first PhD student and things like that. Wonderful. Thank you. I'll hand over to Michael. Thanks, Alex. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, so with projects like the Welcome Trust's Reimagine Research Campaign, uh, which have highlighted the want and need by the research community to improve research culture, and the importance of which has been further increased by the global uh, pandemic. So I was interested in hearing more from you all about what changes you would like to see uh, to the research environment, um, how COVID-19 has maybe impacted on your thinking or things that have been incorporated during COVID-19, which you'd like to see um, continue in the long term. Does you have any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, so I was lucky enough to run a number of welcome uh, culture cafes on how we'd improve research culture and a number of ideas came out from that. Um, some are quick wins and some are a longer term thing. So first off, it's, it's just getting the data on contract links. And I think there's definitely um, a push to have fewer short contracts. They reduce the number of two years or less contracts. And actually since my PhD a long time ago, most of my contracts at the outset have been a year or 18 months. Uh, they have been short. Um, and I've been able to transfer between fields because of my epidemiology and statistical skills. So I think it's recognizing that we've got technical and core staff who are not going to follow the traditional academic pathway to professor, but they are specialists in their area, whether they're program managers or statisticians or lab managers. We need longer term secure funding for our technical staff. Um, there are very few um, posts available to become a professor, so I think there needs to be uh, better career support for people who want to transition successfully to another career. Uh, so we've been advocating for a long time to, to, in the UK, start a big project, looking at the people who've got a PhD and following their career trajectory forwards. Um, and I think it needs to be less about individuals and how brilliant an individual is and a bit more about team science. I really agree with that. I think it's the obvious choice for everyone what they would like to change in academia is less short time, short term contracts. Um, and I think it is a big problem that if you don't want to become a PI and go down the route to climb up to professor, there isn't really another option. You can maybe do one or two postdocs and then you kind of start to struggle to get the funding. So. And then you kind of have to decide whether to move out of academia or not, which I think is such a shame when you're so specialised in your research field to just lose that person. There's no support from the universities or funding bodies to keep that skill. No, I, I agree with what Gail and Anjali have said. I think there's a lot of pressure um, for postdocs if they want to stay in academia to have lots of different roles to show their initiative. 
um, you know, and there is that lack of work-life balance as well, which sort of incorporates into that. And, you know, I think every time, like Gail had mentioned, you do a different postdoc or you move around, you become highly specialised. And, um, you know, there is that pressure for you to always achieve more, to do more, you know, to stand out as an academic. Um, you know, a lot of us, we love what we do. And that's why we get involved in all of these other extra roles within the university, um, whether that's through teaching or being involved in committees and so forth. Um, but it's it's extremely, it's like, um, I find it slightly um, distressing to a certain extent that there is a huge pressure on early career, mid-career postdocs, if they want to stay in academia, to show their career trajectory, how they're moving up. And in terms of moving around, you know, there is lack of support. You know, if if a postdoc who has been in academia for a long time to move into the industry, you know, their criteria is completely different, regardless of the fact that we have a lot of skills, you know, that are transferable. But, you know, um, there is still that sort of glass ceiling that once you've done quite a few postdocs, you can't really move around because you become highly specialised. And what Anjali hit upon before as well is that, especially in academic institution, there isn't a huge distinction be between staff who are permanent technical support staff and those who are postdocs, you know. What is there that postdocs have to offer, uh, which is different to the technical staff, you know, because they're highly expert in their field in running a core facility, whether that's, um, you know, a confocal microscope or, you know, doing highly specialized techniques. So what is there that postdocs have to offer, which is diff different to the technical staff so that the you know, higher management will retain us. So there's all these pressures. I mean, I can go on and on. I'm going to get someone else to sort of chip in. Yeah, I mean, the short-term contracts, yeah, we don't fund, you know, as postdocs, I think, during, while well, I was doing postdocs, I must have had three or four, maybe five contracts. Um, and since I moved into the more technical side, I've had also three, four, five contracts. It's, it's just, it's never-ending short-term contracts. I will say when it comes to the funding bodies, um, as well as funding our staff and making sure that we're actually giving them stability. I mean, there's nothing worse than you get towards the end of a, a research contract and you're not concentrating on writing papers. You're concentrating on trying to get that funding. And the funding takes so long to arrive. You know, I've got um, two things out there now. One as an RA, one as a fellowship. And you know, when am I going to hear those results? Maybe six months, maybe eight months. It's 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 a long-term thing. I think at least we're actually starting to be honest with the, uh, the, the diversity or lack of diversity from the research facilities. So the Royal Society, the UKRI have been doing loads and loads of, uh, you know, they've been speaking to lots of people to try and ask about the culture and what can we improve and... Hopefully they work. In fact, I'm I'm going to another UKRI one after this recording, um, and so it's good that they're starting to ask people, and it's great with the reports that have come out. Again, the UKRI and the Royal Society on you know gender bi binary genders. You know, women are less likely to apply for large grants, but they're also less likely to get them. You know, when it comes to race, we see the same thing. When it comes to disability, we say see the same thing. At least we're no longer pretending that those barriers aren't there. So that's a real positive step. 
and it's just hopefully we will actually be listened to. We're being asked to talk a lot at the moment, but will that lead to real change? Will we see that those numbers shift? Will we see that those numbers, like say, at least we're being open about those numbers, but will they start to shift? And sort of tying into the whole short-term funding and, and everything, you know, do we do they really value the outreach, the equality work, the equity work? I mean, does that really? So I've worked as a technical post for seven years. I'm now you trying to get back into research, and I'm leveraging all those, all the outreach and all the everything else that I've done. Will I get anything? You know, or is it that I don't have the papers? What what do they really value? So let's see. I think it'll be an interesting test case. <laughs> So do you guys do you guys think that the bottom line is the sort of um, realistic deliverables that are expected from you know postdocs? Because like you're saying, we have short-term contracts. We're expected to do you know um, a lot of extra work on top of doing our research project. So do you think the accountability lies with with all of the stakeholders in terms of giving us realistic deliverables that within those short-term contracts? you know, this is what we need to achieve. But the goalpost seems to always get moved further and further away because we need to come across as being, you know, competitive or, you know, showing how we're different. So I think a theme from the culture cafes that came up was that there is a lot of hidden work that isn't remunerated, isn't recognised. And that's why the funders are making moves so that the Royal Society and then UKRI have adopted a narrative CV. Mm. Uh, so saying more about what did you do, what did you contribute and um, more about, you know, how have you supported research culture or EDI initiatives? Uh, so I think very slowly that is coming, that recognition, uh, there should be recognition for doing all these other things. And I hope at some point in the future there'll be remuneration appropriately as well. Um, I know at the two institutions I've worked at that when it comes to promotions or progression, uh, number one's research, then it's teaching, and then a small proportion is about citizenship, even though we might spend a lot of time on citizenship activities and believe passionately about these things, as you know, just as passionately as we believe in our research. Um, so I think things are starting to change, but it will be slow to trickle through to all the funders. Um, but I will say that um, I think what's nice is with the future leader fellowships that have come out of the UKRI recently it's about you know it's not necessarily about a particular project it's about funding a researcher and funding them for quite a long time and giving them the money and the opportunity to grow and so I think that is a really good model how it works we'll see but it's it's nice to see that shift to um, investing in the person rather than one specific short-term project. I'd agree with it, um, but there is a tension there. So welcome and UKR about that scheme. You know, they've been open that um, they're not seeing the diversity in people being awarded those fellowships uh, that, that they would like. And so then there is a tension between the funders saying we're representing the applicants and who gets awarded. The institutions need to do more to support more diverse people applying. And the institutions are saying, well, you need to open up things, funders, because, you know, you're not getting a good reputation for funding, you know, diverse people. 
So there's a tension there between the institutions and the funders that, that needs resolving. And it, they, they are complex issues and they will need people working together across this space to really make change happen. I'm really pleased that there are more of these schemes um, but at the moment, uh, you know, Welcome were uh, open in their last um, financial year. They didn't fund any UK black researchers. And I thought it was really brave of them to admit that and to put out a plan to say, right, we are going to change things internally and externally. We're going to work as hard as we can to, to create change. Uh, but I do find it interesting that these new schemes have been set up but are still perpetuating old issues going back to Sadaf's original point about whether you know the goals for your contracts are realistic in the time you're given I mean I really don't think they are because well since I finished I've had I'm on my fourth one year contract and you know the last few months you're kind of scrambling to make sure you've got the money in place so really you've not got 12 months you maybe got nine or ten months to work on the projects that have been funded and you know, on top of that's just assuming that all you're doing is your lab work and then analyzing your data, getting out for publication. But you've got a lot of other responsibilities on top of that. If you've got students around and then, you know, reviewing papers and putting in applications for money, it's just, it's not realistic, I think, to have a work-life balance within that time. And I think it's almost kind of expected that you should, you know, work unsociable and longer hours to to make those those things happen um which i guess you know for me i don't have a family at the moment but you know a lot of the postdocs i work with they do have kids and other commitments it's just it's not really manageable and so Daph, you touched on this as well in terms of the impact in terms of you know the pressure and the stress that postdocs are under is there anything that can be done about that, Gail, or is that just part of the role, do you think? I mean, I guess it's, it is part of the role to an extent, and I think it is changing, you know, with the longer contracts and the, the more support that we're moving towards, that will, will help to improve things. I mean, I think as much as you can complain about the, you know, the longer hours and things at the same time, it's a very flexible environment to work in, you know, it's not set hours so you do have the benefits of of that as well you know you can start a bit earlier or later if you need to um, but I would like to see that this improves over the course of my career at least make it easier for people coming through after me. You know just to build on what Gail has said so Gail and I are in the same university and Gail is much junior to I am um, it's challenging for Gail as well, you know, being an early career researcher, I've been there, you know, and like she said, um, you know, there, there are individuals with families who have to work odd hours and it's flexible, I agree. And I think most of the time, um, you know, we do manage our work, but there is like this unsaid expectation, which, which won't be sort of written but it's expected of you, like Gail said. And, you know, I've been there as well. And it's sort of disheartening to see that, you know, within the last five years or even more, you know, things are still the same, you know. Like Anjali said, you know, change is happening slowly, but, you know, um, with other career paths, you don't see these issues. And it's only within academia 
that we see this, you know, whether that's permanent jobs, whether that's, you know, work-life balance challenges or, you know, these um, expectations, the extra work that we have to do um, to be able to get that promotion, you know. So, you know, yeah, things are changing. I'm extremely hopeful, but um, it's that slow pace that I think gets to me at times. And I feel that the reason why it's quite slow, the change within academia is quite slow is because that accountability is always passed between stakeholders, you know? So whose responsibility is it to sort of give those realistic um, expectation? Is it the funding bodies? Is it the um, university management or the, you know, the lead PIs who have the grant, you know? Um, is it that pressure of publication, getting those high impact factor papers, you know? Um, so I don't know, it's, it's one of those, um, debates that can go round and round but you know I just hope that you know things change now that we are voicing our concerns and having these dialogues. Anjali I'd like to um, build on something that you were talking about earlier so it would be great if we could discuss some of the other issues that have taken place in society recently issues such as Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movement, LGBTQ rights, Academia is such a diverse place to work. So how can we, um, referring to what you were saying earlier, how can we lead the way in terms of creating an inclusive and welcoming environment? Yes, so um, yeah, I think, I think the murder of George Floyd galvanized things at a, a perfect moment that grabbed everyone around the world. And certainly my inbox went through the roof, but in a good way, more people want to move from saying I'm not a racist to being how can I be an active anti-racist um, but I think we can learn a lot from the Athena Swan movement but be aware that there are far fewer people in academia who are people of colour and they are already stretched really thin doing what they are doing so more allies are needed. Um, in terms of improving things so Certainly at the postdoc level, at the student level, um, there's more diversity. I'm not saying it's, it's where it should be. I think in the UK, we are missing something like 2000 black academics, given the, the proportion of uh, BME people in the population. Um, so I think there's pipeline issues of uh, recruiting people and retaining people. And there's lots of work in that area. Um, but I think in terms of making a difference to postdocs. I think we do need to acknowledge that racism exists in its various forms and often um, microaggressions, you know, are a real key part where it's not significant enough to merit a bullying and harassment process. Um, so we need a lot of education. We need psychologically safe spaces for people to talk about race and racism and microaggressions. And we need to train up allies and bystanders to recognize the signs of microaggressions. And I've, I've experienced it myself recently and was really shocked by it. Even though I've done lots of work in this area in the past, I myself hadn't had some of these experiences of knowing that what I was saying in a meeting wasn't really gonna be listened to compared to what the white men in the room were saying. Um, so I think there's something about psychologically safe spaces. There's something about having trained advisors where you can just go and say this has happened and, you know, not be questioned about whether it was a misunderstanding. 
then I think there's a real role for reverse mentoring. So making sure that our senior leaders understand and appreciate the experiences of people who are going through things like microaggressions or, you know, we had a talk from a black academic where he went, he asked a white colleague, who has supported your career? And they just reeled off a list of names. Whereas for him, he was far more conscious of the number of people who had put obstacles in his career. Um, and so the networks aren't necessarily there. The support isn't necessarily there. And I think um, there needs to be clearer guidance about how to do promotions and progression, clearer opportunities for coaching and mentoring. Um, and I think that you know, certainly at the university I'm at, we do have a named person for race and religion, but she works part time. And what I'm seeing is that existing Athena Swan facilitators are having their job titles changed to becoming an EDI person more broad, who can then also cover race and LGBT plus and disability, even though they're still part time, they've still got the same map time, there's still the pressures from Athena Swan, but they're being asked to expand their role. So you know, certainly in my department division, I'd love to see a full-time person on BME issues because at the moment people are really stretched thin on thin on EDI initiatives. I think um, I think the word that one of the things that you touched on there, Angela, is retention. There's this poor retention, and why is that? It's because there's a lack of trust. There's a lack of faith that everything's being done in good faith. The truth is, if we can start retaining people, then we'll start to recruit more people as well. Because once you start to see a more diverse workforce, then you're like, oh, actually, I can work here. Um, and so, why are we struggling with that retention? Let's be perfectly honest. There are academics who are quite openly racist, who are quite openly sexist, who are quite willing to put them, their names onto papers that go to international publications and do so without any repercussions. And that's because they have the funding, they have the power. The I honestly believe within uh, my institution that things would change a lot faster if it weren't for the threat from things like the government who say, well, no, you have to keep this debate fair. You have to keep free speech. We have to give people the same amount of voice, no matter which side they fall on. We need to remove the power and the power is the money and the money comes from the funders. And there has to be, um, you know, consequences for acting in bad faith, for actively working against... Um, you know, EDI, it's, like I say, these people are quite openly able to do this. And not only that, they're being celebrated. There was an issue recently of pretty open transphobia that we complained about. And the there was one project that had been fully researched, fully funded. We're talking experts in their field. And we had someone from a completely different field who objected because of their own personal views and they were treated as equal of equal academic merit so how can we say that a research project a proper research project which has gone through ethics it's got funding is the same value as someone's personal opinion how is that the case that's it's just not and so this idea that we have to have free speech that we have to have academic um, debate is is ludicrous if that means that we're actually reducing the quality of our academic output we should actually be caring 
that what we're saying has real academic integrity and so we've got to stop pretending and giving people who far too much power and far too much of a platform because the universities are just worried about being criticised. I think we need to start reclaiming our integrity uh, as institutions. So Clara, is that something that needs to be led from the top or is that something that people from the bottom can lead as well or, or is it both? I think, and I do think that universities would be further along if they could. There's, unfortunately, if you've got a professor who brings in an awful lot of money from the funding bodies, you've got a lot of power. You're untouchable because you're bringing money into the university. And so the actual power might not really be at the top. And so I think this is where, like I say, funding bodies can play their role in making sure that who they give that funding to uh, it's not just about giving funding to people who are doing really great EDI, but it's about maybe thinking twice about giving it to people who are, like I say, actively working against inclusion in in universities. Sorry, I just want to add that um, universities, um, your question, Alex, was that, you know, is the change coming from bottom up or should it be initiated from the top? So um, universities are taking an initiative um, in creating committees which advocate inclusivity, diversity and equality, you know, now there is a drive to have race equality champions which talk about all of these issues that Clara and Anjali have raised. But um, I, I do want to say that, you know, um, researchers like us need to get involved with those committees. And that's where the bottom up change will happen. If we get involved in them, then we can advocate policy changes. And it stops being a tick box exercise for the institution to either gain more funding or to gain their visibility or get those um, students or international students maybe who are paying higher fees than home students. So I think there is a balance between the change that needs to occur. Having those committees and acknowledging those sort of disparities is it's extremely important and institutions are doing that. But um, I feel that it shouldn't be a tick box exercise. And the only reason it becomes, um, it stops becoming a tick box exercise is if individuals like us get actively involved in it. So come back to the theme of today's podcast. Uh, what are the new realities faced by researchers and how can new postdocs prepare for them and established postdocs embrace them? Uh, particularly thinking here about how maybe research culture and environment has changed um, since the outbreak of COVID-19? Um, well, I think the main thing is that, well, certainly at Aberdeen universities, the capacities on the lab space is restricted. Um, so for example, we're only allowed, I think, four people in our lab, but there's about seven or eight of us in the group. Um, so you're not getting as much time in the lab um, to do your work which then makes it difficult, you know, to, to get the data and things for your papers and for the end of your grant. But also I think it is a collaborative job. You know, you're used to talking, you know, with other staff members within your group and, you know, other groups as well within your institute. And that's been taken away, I think, to an extent, or, I mean, there is the virtual interaction, but it's not quite the same as, you know, when you're in an office and you've got, you know, a group of people from lots of different backgrounds that can sit and, you know, help to move your project forward. 
And then I think the other obvious thing is it's going to be more competitive for funding because, you know, the charities and things don't have quite as much money because of the effect the pandemic has had on them. Um, so it's a bit of a vicious, vicious circle, I think. Yeah, so for me, there's been some really big changes. Um, thanks to the pandemic, people now know what an epidemiologist is, so they know what I do, which is nice. Um, but equally, there are so many more armchair epidemiologists around these days with their very strong views that count more than mine or are equal to my viewpoint. Um, for me, as a researcher, um, I didn't have a computer at home before. So I now have finally got a proper office set up. Um, and for most of last year, uh, I, I don't work in the lab. I, I need to access secure data sets. For most of last year, uh, the, the technology for me to securely access really confidential information didn't exist until November. And from then I could get back to doing my research. So my other researcher developer job, I was lucky that the percentage I was funded on that increased. But for that job, I got used to doing back to back meetings between 10 and six every day for three days a week. And it was ridiculous. Um, and so that divide between home and work went out the window a bit. I was actually doing the work at evenings and weekends. Um, so in some ways, my productivity increased. I'm not in an open plan office being distracted by noise and other things. Um, and I am now comfortable working from home. So thinking about going forwards when the office opens up again, do I need to be there all the time? Not necessarily. Um, I do need that people-people interaction and to talk about ideas and how to move research forward. But I think that for me could be done in one or two days in the office per week. I'll have to see what my group wants to do, but that, that's certainly something. Um, I think a good thing from the pandemic as well is that um, certainly at Oxford, people have worked across disciplines just to make the big stuff happen. So there's far more opportunities for people to work together and for team science um, and a, a real recognition of what science can do, the power of science. That is tempered, as Gail has said, by the fact that a lot of money has been shifted to COVID research. And that means there's less money for other disciplines out there at the moment. So I think funding wise, there is going to be a very difficult period um, where the hot topics get the money. And I think navigating that will be challenging. But we've also seen a lot more collaboration, not just across universities, but with industry and with pharmaceutical companies and other engineering companies, for example. So I think we will need to think creatively and network beyond our usual boundaries to weather this difficult funding period. It's It's been an interesting time. Um, so I'm hands on. I mean, I didn't really leave the lab, even though I'm not in in, in medical science. Um, and but our, our master's research students for example they had a lot less lab time but that was nice because I was a lot more hands-on so it was it was active research that I was doing for the uh, the limited time and so I'd actually say that they probably came out of it with uh, hopefully better skills but across the board you know we've seen because of limits on labs you're not allowed to maybe get trained on this type of technique you're not allowed to do this and it's the same with our PhDs I mean obviously our postdocs as well but in some ways there are a lot of people that have lost 
um, that will have missed out on skills that they could have got otherwise. So I run a series of uh, webinars with a group called Tigers in STEM, and we've got early career researchers talking about, and a lot of the students that are at master's stage have said, well, it would have been a research project, but we weren't allowed to do it. So their project has turned into either data analysis or it's turned into a literature review. And so they've lost a lot of technical skills, but on the plus side, you know, some of them have actually said, I never would have gone into data analysis, but actually I love it. So in for some, you know, there's been positives. I definitely think that they've lost a lot of a lot of those technical skills and, and hands-on experience. One thing that I would also say, and I think, you know, this builds on what Angela was saying, is that sort of accessibility you know there's a lot of people with chronic illnesses with disabilities who can't necessarily go into the lab and and maybe we've improved the technology so that they can come to webinars so that they can come and be part of a conference i was talking at um, an event in december and there was it was a chemistry event i was speaking as a chemist and there were some some people that talked to me afterwards and they said in my country it's illegal to be lgbt you know, it's it's actual death penalty for being LGBT. And I could never go, and I've never seen an LGBT person speak before. But this was a chemistry event. I came to a chemistry event. I could hear you talk. And there was, there was such a power in that, you know, the fact that they could finally see someone. It's like... And, and so, I don't know. I'm looking forward to seeing people, and I really want to hang out with people. But at the same time, like this online thing has its benefits and, and believe me i'm someone that wants to turn the computer off at the end of the day i can only stare, stare at screens for so long but but there are these wonderful benefits and a conference i ran in january i had people in different time zones from literally all around the globe speaking which i just wouldn't have been able to do um they didn't have you know they wouldn't have had the funding to be able to come to that conference otherwise so there's negatives but there's also positives and it's it's how we embed the positives like Anjali was saying with working from home how we embed those positive aspects and make sure that and 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 add them to our arsenal so that we can improve uh, research culture going forward wonderful so I mean when we first moved home it seemed we were all in emergency mode and we moved into this online working but now that we're moving forward um, it seems that this hybrid model is here to stay from what you're saying Clara there's real benefits um, to you know in terms of engaging with people that you would never normally be able to engage with from all around the world are there any other benefits for hybrid working particularly for postdocs or for researchers or do the negatives kind of outweigh those positives True. I, I think, no, I agree with what everyone said before. I think this um, blended approach to research and teaching, I think, is the way forward. And there's a lot of positives that can gain, be gained from it. Um, whether, like Gail said before, that, you know, um, now there's a reduced capacity in the labs. You know, everybody goes there, does their lab work, spends as much time that's needed in the labs, then can come home and, you know, maybe look at the emails or do the writing and whatever. And then at the same time, you know, like what I was saying before about work-life balance, you know, if you're working from home, you can, the positive thing is that you can give that attention to your family, however little, with a little bit of, you know, adjustments. But I think um, going forward, I think this blended approach, I think it, it's it's useful, um, especially for researchers, yeah. 
Can I also just say as someone that my office and my lab are in a windowless basement and so um as as much as I've been in the in the in my basement for most of the this pandemic, it's actually been nice when I have been able to do talks like this and uh, have a window. It's really nice to see the sunlight. <laughs> So this podcast is called the Developing Practice Podcast, and we like to finish each podcast with three or four take-home tips that the listeners can reflect on in terms of their own personal practice. So maybe if you could give us one or two tips from your own reflections um, that we could then take away and reflect on, that would be great. So Gail, if I could come to you first. Yeah, of course. Um, So I think for me, probably the main thing is to not compare yourself to others within your group or out with your groups on, you know, your breadth of knowledge um, and also the stage you're at in your careers. You know, you could have a postdoc who's got one year experience and someone who's, you know, got nine or 10 years of experience. So it's just important to remember that, you know, focus on what you're doing and, and doing the best that you can do, not compare yourself to other people's achievements. Anjali, if we come to you next. Yeah, so I think uh, the number one thing is that you need to look after yourself first. No one can look after you as well as you you should be able to look after yourself, given the difficult times that have happened in the last year. And I'm certainly uh, giving myself a a year for health and well-being now. Beyond that, um, I would say be proactive, go and seek out people and opportunities. Um, And I think also the third one um, would be be determined, be determined and keep going because academia is a place where you almost need to get used to failure. You know, your paper not accepted by a journal or or find out the ratio of grants that have a success. In one of my areas, it's one in three grants are successful. So you need to get used to you know, two of your grant applications not coming back successful in my area and and wait, you know, wait for that. So you have to be determined to ride out academic life. Um, And then the very last tip would be, even if you don't feel it, really celebrate your achievements or set aside a day later on to really say, right, I'm going to do something special to mark this day, to have a photograph, to have an afternoon tea, to do something to mark when you get a grant or a paper or a prize or whatever it is, those things don't come come along that often. So, so do find a way to mark the good times uh, related to your academic work. Brilliant. So Daph, if we come to you next. So I think what I've learned going through my career is that um, exploring additional career paths um, following a PhD early on is extremely important. And this notion that following a PhD, the only career path that one can have is an academic career path. I think that is something which is now becoming slightly redundant. So exploring early on additional career paths that your skills can be utilized in is is important. And um, another thing which um, I can speak from experience as well is that in every postdoc that one does, um, having clear goals that you want to achieve in addition to your research project, whether those clear goals are for your own professional development, whether it's you know to get more actively involved in the institution, uh, running of the institution or teaching, having those clear goals for professional development are um, also extremely important. Great, and Clara, if we come to you. 
Yeah, um, similar to Anjali, I was going to say, remembering the successes, it's so easy to see all the negative impacts and see where we still have room to improve in terms of culture, in terms of our research. But we forget to sort of look at the things that we've achieved and how things have changed. I I think being, you know, having been in the university environment for 15 years, I can, I can see the improvements as much as we've still got so much to do. Um, we, we do have the improvement. And also, and I think, uh, I can't remember who said this as well, but also finding finding your group. This is the, one of the lovely things about um, having support online. You can find a group, you know, there might not be a trans scientist in your group. There might not be a scientist in your university that's, you know, the same religion as you, but you can find that support group online. I, for so long, thought that I was the only trans scientist and turns out way not but um i didn't know that and so being able to find your support group and then ask them like is this acceptable should my supervisors do this or you know maybe other people will have tips for how to get grants and funding so find your group wonderful thank you colleagues really good conversation it's great to hear from you